Hello and welcome everyone to part 11 of the Anderson Countdown. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and this week we are answering some questions, reflecting a little bit on the journey that has been the Anderson Countdown. So we have a whole list of 10 questions about 10 movies that we'll be going through here beat by beat. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my Countdown co-host, Scott Harvey, Jay Habib. Scott, you first. It's been a minute since we actually recorded the French Dispatch, I believe. You've had a few weeks to digest our years-long Wes Anderson countdown in terms of recording. How are you feeling about all of it? I was going to say, I guess it has been a little bit of time since we did the French Dispatch, but it doesn't seem that way, mainly because of how much time passed between other episodes of this particular series, as you're alluding to there. A a Um, brief break compared to the 10-month vacation we took. You know, uh, right now might be the time when I would say something cliche like, I can't believe we're already done with the Wes Anderson series. I can't believe we got through all the movies already. It seems like we just started. Sure. But I can't say that because we started last year. Um, yeah, we literally started in March 2022. A year and multiple months yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, but regardless, we made it, Scott. You know, some people would have just sure. given up, I'm sure. But uh, but not sure. us. Um, we forage on. And I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to Asteroid City. And uh, it is premiered now. And it sounds yes. promising. It sounds like a Wes Anderson film from everything I could discern on uh, on social media and reviews. Jay, how are you feeling, you know, a week or two or whatever it's been since our uh, discussion of the French Dispatch? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I really had to strain my brain a little bit to think back to some of the questions we're answering today, just because like you both have said, it's been so long, but the finish line is in sight. Uh, actually, a little bit closer for Scott Shelton and I, since we live in the wonderful city of New York, and we'll be able to watch Asteroid City in a theater. Uh, yeah, someone told me that it's uh, the greatest city in the world, I think. I'm not sure. Well, I'll be able to watch it in a theater, to be clear. It's just not well, that's as what you soon think. as It's you actually going to be on Disney Plus uh, June 23rd. So, yeah. <laughs> I really, really missed an opportunity to say straight to Max there, but that's okay. <laughs> it could be straight. I guess, I guess that's because right, it's a Fox output, so it's split Hulu. And HP and Max, sorry, spoke there. That's a naughty. Um, yes, I think it'll actually be on both Max and and Hulu. To be fair, when it does come out on streaming platforms, but yes, Scott will see it in the theater. I, I, I'm disappointed because I feel like we we've in the in the realm of succession, we Scott's probably pre grieved uh, because it was a surprise. I think when the French Dispatch came out multiple weeks before. Uh, in New York versus when Scott was able to see it. And I received a, some very animated texts about how stupid that was. But, you know, we pre-grieved the process of it coming out a week early or, or whatever in New York. So uh, happily, maybe won't receive rageful text messages. So we'll see. It, I'm used to it at this point. You could always you, come visit. That's true. I mean, well, I think we jokingly said that you could come and visit. <laughs> I did just do that as much as I would love to do it again so soon. Um, have other Look, you made you made your deal. We, we could have been doing, you know, we could we could have been doing Asteroid City instead of The Flash. But instead, you decided that you didn't want to come to New York and watch Asteroid City. So here we are. The Flash. Uh, or Elemental. I mean, Scott, you, dealer's choice, man. Whatever you'd like. 
I just want to know if he enters the Speed Force again. I think he starts in the Speed Force, I'd imagine. All right, hang on. Now I'm, I'm, don't I'm, know I'm what nipping that means, this conversation so. in the butt. I have muted every TV spot during these NBA playoffs. Don't, I, don't worry, Jay. I don't understand the, stand the words that are coming out of my mouth. I'm just yeah. referencing the fact that the Flash, the flash the entering Force. the Speed Force yeah. was an Academy Award-winning scene from... Yes, uh, no, I remember. Yeah. Well, you know, it, Jay, mute yourself if you need to right now, but Snape kills Dumbledore, so unfortunately... <laughs> The cat's out of the bag on that one, I think. I don't think there's any way to, to hide from that spoiler anymore. Mm-hmm. And so. Rosebud was the sled. Wow. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Going Citizen Kane now. What do, what Wait, do I, I mean, mean? You know, that, you hit Harry Potter on me. I figure I can go. Y'all haven't even seen Citizen on him. <laughs> that, was, that was like a, a callback to a different countdown series that yeah. caused a lot of <laughs> angst. Well was it? Okay. I mean, it would have been if if you know, Citizen Kane head over here uh, had spread the gospel a little bit better. So not even that big of a Citizen Kane head, but you got it. You know, you just got to see it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, under no circumstances, you in fact got to give it to him, actually, Scott. I believe that is that is the gospel on Twitter. So, wow, this has been some real banter here in the first five or six minutes. I hope our listeners who definitely are turning this episode on are really thrilled with the content we give them so far. Before we get into the 10 questions that I put together, I feel like it's worthwhile, kind of like on our standard episodes as well, just to give some general thoughts, general comments about Wes Anderson as a filmmaker, things that we really like about him, things that we think make him unique, things that we wish maybe he didn't do as much or did a little bit differently in terms of his filmmaking style. Uh, I, we do have a question later on related to his like the qualities of his filmmaking um so to the extent you want to keep your powder dry for something in that feel free to but scott i wanted to throw it over to you first i think probably coming into the countdown you were the sort of not necessarily convert because i think you talked about your not comp not necessarily complicated but uh twisty history with wes anderson as a filmmaker you talked about how you didn't really totally get him as a filmmaker maybe in your in earlier on in your life but recently leading into the countdown series the last few movies the last couple of years, you'd really come around to him and really think of him as someone who's one of the strongest filmmakers working today. And I'm curious if the countdown has spoken more to that, has enhanced that feeling. There are certain elements of his filmmaking that have stood out to you in sort of this more like concentrated and regimented rewatch of his films in order. Just curious your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, definitely enhanced it. I mean, I'm on record, I think, in our last couple of episodes of saying I don't think he's made a bad film. And we'll do our rankings later, but I don't have any of these movies rated lower than four stars. So um, there's not many directors, certainly as, as prolific as Wes Anderson, that I can say that about, that I don't have any of their films below four stars. I mean, He's probably the only director we've done so far, only countdown series we've done so far that I can say that about. Uh, I know I have at least one Nolan film below four stars. I know I have um, a Fincher film or two below four stars. So, um, yeah, in that regard, maybe he's my favorite director of the ones that we've reviewed so far, potentially. But, yeah, I mean, I, I don't... Do you believe that when you say that out loud? I do think I like Fincher more, but... Um, yeah, I would have figured, yeah. You know, the highs maybe are just a little bit higher. But anyway, not that interesting of a conversation, probably. But as for Wes, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I I definitely liked the new films that I had not seen before. Bottle Rocket, The Darjeeling Limited, um, 
you know, I found my love for some of the films that I have always loved, like The French Dispatch, like The Life Aquatic, um, like The Grand Budapest Hotel, all of that, those were confirmed. Um, and then some films that I had been more negative on, like the like Rushmore and like um, the Royal Tenenbaums, I found myself coming around on. And I think it's just, you know, those films specifically Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, they don't have a lot of likable characters necessarily um, in them or traditionally, traditional protagonists that you root for. And I think just in growing up and maturing um, as a person and as a consumer of content, um, that is something that I have learned to not see as an immediate, you know, sticking point with a film and mm -hmm. more of, you know, a, a, a interesting thing to explore and, and, you know, to look at how is the movie approaching the fact that its protagonist is not traditionally likable? Is it interrogating that? Does it want us to think about that? Or is it, you know, is it just a, a case of, bad writing, bad performing, whatever. And in pretty much all cases with Wes Anderson, it's the former category. So um, yeah, I really enjoyed this series. Jay, what about you? I mean, as, as always with our countdown series, it seems like you're coming relatively fresh. In this case, I don't believe you'd seen any of Wes Anderson movies. Obviously in past countdowns, you'd seen some, if not a lot of films, like you think Nolan, even Fincher, you'd seen a few films before we, we visited that series. What did you think of Wes Anderson as a filmmaker? Yeah, just to just to correct or just to add on, I think it's that uh, the Bond countdown and I think the Star Wars countdown are the two that I came into completely blind. Yeah, two um, of the four because I guess this is our fifth, right? Because we did Star Wars, Nolan, Venture, Bond. Is that the four we've done? That sounds right, and I enjoyed it. So, you know, th this this felt like one of those of the ones we've done. I felt like I was definitely stepping most out of my element. Sure. You know, even though like I've never seen a Star Wars movie, like you know, sci-fi, like. I mean, I Anderson's a, like not that there's not many definitions of the word auteur, but he is an indie filmmaker at the end of the day. Like, sure, he has big budgets, but he's going to be associated with like a unique style. I mean, I think he's generally considered to be a postmodern filmmaker, which is certainly not the case for Nolan or or Fincher or Bond movies or Star Wars movies in general. So it's a very different kind of filmmaker. Definitely. Less mainstream. Definitely. And, you know, I would I would even describe coming into this as like a little bit intimidating because of that. Right. Like I'm stepping into this new space. You know, mm -hmm. Scott Harvey is going to have a lot of opinions about, uh, you know, nothing here is lower than four stars. Right. I actually did, while you were saying that I went to your letterbox and checked a few. So I'm like, no way. But sure enough, like everything was four stars or above. Yeah, I mean, you're saying um, no way because there's no way he really would have given all those movies four stars or above. But here we are. Okay. I mean, you know, I mean, there were only like a couple that I felt the need yeah, to check. Yeah, totally. The, the rest totally. were all like, you know, like, yeah, it makes sense. Like, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were checking the French Dispatch. You were in disbelief. He gave that one four stars. <laughs> no, I remember that one very well. Um, <laughs> I still think that's going to go down as our biggest difference in terms of the know, two of you. Score. Maybe. I think so. It's that or one of the Star Probably Wars movies. Yeah, but we don't have to make that joke. I make that joke every time. Um, I'm not it's, a joke. it's not like I think The Phantom Menace is a five-star film, so I wouldn't say it's it's as big of a... Dispute. Check the tape. <laughs> Check the tape. Four stars, yes, but five stars, no. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, at the at the end of this, like, I, I feel like I'm I'm in on the reference now. Like, I, I get it, you know? Like, I... I under, like, if you, you send me another one of those if XYZ franchise was a Wes Anderson 
film, I'm I'm gonna block your number on my phone. <laughs> swear to God. Yeah, no, that's that's easily one of the more evil things we're getting out of AI right now. Um, that being said, I, I did enjoy this. You know, I it's it's interesting to you know see the style develop. Like I saw, you know, in a relatively short amount of time. Again, you know, we took that ten months off, but I feel like with every film i'm like more and more sure of like okay yes these are the things you do like these are you know stylistically technically your you know your moves these are the themes you like to play with again generally we've you know seen a couple go a little bit like off the beaten path uh thematically at least but you know even though the the french dispatch for me like you know wasn't the highest high uh and you know even if it was grand Budapest hotel which was a few films ago that style I feel like has just become like sharper and sharper. Um, and it'll be interesting to me going into asteroid city. And I think he has another one coming out later this year. And I'm, if you give the me multiple choice story of Henry sugar, thank you. Um, you know, when that comes out and if there's any, you know, whatever the next one after that is like, whether his style and like repeated theme usage is quote unquote, like enough for me. Like I, I feel like one of the critiques I've seen about him, not one that I agree with yet, is that he does a lot of the same stuff. And it's not necessarily just because he uses a lot of the same actors, but, you know, a lot of the same techniques and themes, et cetera. Like, I, again, I'm not, I'm not saying this is something that, like, I agree with, but it's something that I'm like, hey, like, you know, if he makes five more films that I don't feel like are particularly discernible, like, where do I go from there? And I don't feel that way yet because even though the techniques, you know, the style has been very, very similar, the settings have been so different that it's like, okay, like, I love dogs, you know, even though it uses a lot of like, you know, flat colors, dry humor, symmetry, like it, it doesn't look anything like the f- movies we've seen before. Right. And, you know, that was not that long ago. French Dispatch again, like just, you know, it, it's it's a different enough like setting that it's like, OK, like, you know, I'm not I'm not bored of you yet, mm-hmm. even though you are using a lot of the same style. And again, I don't I really don't know much about Asteroid City. I have not watched a trailer for it. I think I read like a one, two sentence synopsis, just like to you know get a vague sense of what it was about but trying to go in blind and i just wonder if that'll you know I, i'm not worried about like not liking asteroid city because it's a lot of the same in fact it also this again from what i can tell it seems like it's gonna be very different setting wise um but i'm just interested to see you know as we go on to the next one two three and so on west films like whether whether that critique carries any merit for me and it doesn't yet yeah yeah i think i think one of the one of the cool things about wes and and this is maybe very a very banal or like obvious statement to make but i think he's just one of these filmmakers who you can you can just see his style and his like sensibilities crystallize on screen in front of you as you watch his movies like i feel like even more so than any of the other filmmakers we've taken a look at. I mean, granted, we've only done directors like twice. We've only done Nolan Adventure. But I think that even those two, there's a sort of like open source, almost like nature of their, like they're identifiable in their like scope and their grandeur, but not necessarily in their like, just like potent visual imagery. And I think that you can literally see that style develop for Wes. And I remember when we were going through this, the countdown or whatever, and I'm saying like the jump from Darjeeling Limited to like Fantastic Mr. Fox to Moonrise is like it, it is like such a it was so interesting to see him dive into a different 
medium of of filmmaking and then emerged from that with like a much more clearer sense of how he wanted to frame things like you can see the early stages of that in his first like three four five movies you can you can see the the baby steps in development it just felt like such a huge leap of his commitment to you know a certain frame a certain sort of visual eye and i think that's really i think as a viewer as someone who's like interested in in how a filmmaker's talents develop or how his style crystallizes i think that he's a really cool filmmaker to take a look at because it's not that hard to follow the development whereas like i think the fincher and the nolan stuff like it's not as linear a journey i don't think in some of their like filmmaking development and skills and whatnot i think there's advancements maybe there's a step back not even necessarily in a bad way but then there's like a shift in direction and then a shift back and and i think that um maybe their their filmmaking techniques their development have come in different areas than just like how does how am i visually going to frame uh the the film that i'm shooting whereas like nolan's obviously much more interested in how a narrative structure is framed around time and things like that. And Fincher is sort of, I think he's interested in more things that happen behind the camera and the sort of notion of almost like exacting um, precision in, in, in not necessarily the way a film, a shot is framed, but how his actors perform something. So I think that there's like these stylistic tweaks that are a little bit more under the hood. Um, and I, but I think the actual visual style is something that's so such a trademark of Wes is, is a big deal. And, and, you know, I, I was someone who really was only familiar with the second half of Wes's career coming into the countdown was curious how the early, his early films would change my perspective on his later films and, and how they would intermix with each other and, and which ones I would be more of a fan of. I think, you know, we'll get in to the rankings later on. And, and obviously I think it'll come out as we talk about these different movies with the questions I'm about to ask, but I did find that, you know, the later movies are the ones that I think still resonate most strongly with me. Um, maybe there's some element of of nostalgia involved with that just because of when I saw, you know, the, those particular films or or whatnot. But some of the earlier films did still stand out. Right. Some of the earlier movies were still like hold a strong place, I think, in in ha- and how I think of Wes as a filmmaker. And they'll certainly come up as we go through these questions. Scott, any last thoughts before we jump into the questions? Anything else you want to add about about Wes? No, I mean, I think to to some of your point, I think he does follow the trend of, you know, some other filmmakers that I really enjoy, even like Christopher Nolan that we mentioned, um, but also his his you know occasional co writer Noah Baumbach. I think of in the recent decade. I don't know if it's because they've gotten older or other life experiences, their films have become a little warmer perhaps a little more emotional a little more open-hearted um than maybe they were earlier in his career although i do think there are moments in even films like rushmore and the life aquatic and stuff like that of you know of genuine heart and emotion um i think he's opened up that he's opened up that part of him even more in his recent films um and i just resonate with that more in the same way that i resonate with um Nolan's 2010s films as being sort of my favorite era for him. And, um, you know, Baumbach, who I mentioned as well, you know, that's when he starts teaming up with Greta Gerwig and making some some wonderful films too, so. All right. I think we're going to start with what I hope is an easier one of the questions. 
and we'll go to Scott first. We'll just go Scott J. Scott um, in this order for each question. But your favorite lead performance of the 10 films that Wes has? Yeah, so my answer um, would have to I mean, I think there's one that jumps out that probably one of you guys or both of you guys is going to say. Um, and obviously that's a great pick. But um, mm-hmm. I think looking back on it for me, even though it's not one of my favorite films overall of Wes Anderson. I mean, again, I like all of them, so it's not like I'm knocking it, but I think that it is hard to deny for me the power of Gene Hackman's performance as Royal Tenenbaum in The Royal Tenenbaums. I thought it when I rewatched it this time. Um, I even, you know, maybe commented at the time that I thought some of the other performances maybe just kind of got overshadowed by how, just how magnetic he is in that role. And Again, I think it's a it's a typical Wes Anderson protagonist role of somebody who's very narcissistic, somebody um, who's very abrasive at times, who has this sort of caustic wit. Um, but somehow there he's able to access that little bit of of empathy or, or sympathy that we might be able to have for that person and eventually twist that into, you know, the point in the end. And, um, you know, Royal Tenenbaum obviously does do a couple of things to quote unquote redeem himself in the third act of the movie. Um, and I think Gene Hackman is able to sell all of those moments. He's able to, you know, again, sell himself as this person who is the centerpiece of this family, broken family maybe, but whose influence on everyone can be felt and, you know, perhaps explains the reason why they are, you know, broken in some ways in the way that they are um and i think he plays so many shades of that brilliantly i also think he's very funny you know i'm thinking about the scene where he goes out like the the out it's where he's introducing himself to like his grandsons to ben stiller's sons um that you know him in that scene is very it's funny it's like the basketball court right or the tennis yeah court i, I like wanted to say yeah. it was a basketball court i didn't know if i was imagining that or not but um but yeah um great scene I, th- I think he's just incredible throughout the movie i think objectively speaking it might be the performance in, in any of these movies and so um i think it's my answer you know again i could also see the case for several other performances which one of you guys may bring up but um that's my pick yeah i think royal is such an incredible character i mean i was thinking about it when you were talking about anderson as presenting these sort of unlikable protagonists and whatnot. And I was thinking about Royal Tenenbaums and I Hackman is just like such, such a charismatic guy that, I mean, Royal is like such an asshole. Like he's just such a huge asshole, but you can't help, but not just kind of like him at the same time. I think just because this is sort of like, you know, a tier S tier, whatever charisma that he sort of brings to the screen. Jay favorite lead performance. Real quick, I just want to say that was a great choice. That was my backup. I had to have some backups. I didn't know what order Scott Shelton was going to go in. Yeah. Now that I'm a, a veteran, he doesn't just let me go first every time, which is great. Uh, I'm gonna okay, go so Ray moving F- on, I'll do mine now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's Ray Fiennes for me. Sure. Um, it's Gustav and Grand Budapest Hotel. All around, just so solid, magnetic, like quotable, you know. I, I mean, for some reason, I always hear, get your hands off my lobby boy and Scott Harvey's voice, not well, yeah, his. Yeah, because he just yells <laughs> that. He yelled that like three or four times before we even watched the movie. Sorry. Yep, but 
you know, there's there's this scene where he's uh, going off on Tony Revolori in front of the prison about forgetting his perfume, which ends with, you know, oh, you're a refugee? Well, I take it all back. Um, yeah. You know, the scene where they're going up and down the mountain and through the church trying to, like, escape. You know, are you Mr. Gustav of the Grand Budapest Hotel? And he's just not having it by the end. Like, I don't know. Again, it's definitely not one of your less likable protagonists, um, like Rose Hennenbaum or uh, Steve Zissou, but... You know, again, you know, maybe a little bit, you know, morally gray, at least like how he's presented early on. But then, you know, you you kind of run with it and you're just like, you cannot help a root for this person. Um, also, I think I said this last when we spoke about the movie, like, you know, Ray Fiennes to me just is Voldemort. And it was so cool to just see him do something completely different. And yeah, I don't know. It's 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 the movie I love the most on the countdown by far not terribly surprising to me that it ultimately is my favorite lead performance um yeah look look, i had my first choice and i had my backup they've both been taken so now i'm firing blanks almost i will say royal was actually gonna be my choice i thought i was gonna be on safe ground taking taking gene hackman but i will say for my my third choices and it's maybe debatable whether this person is truly the lead of, of the movie but if the academy can sort of mess around with what counts as lead and what counts as supporting i will say uh i can too and i'm gonna say that bruce willis is my favorite lead performance for moonrise kingdom i think we talked about it on the episode that it's one of those things where you know this is maybe bruce willis's last great film role before he really just started to do sort of almost like paycheck gigs uh you know single you know two three day film shoots for movies that went direct to dvd or director streaming or whatnot. And it's kind of weird to think about that. That was, you know, 11 years ago, obviously he's retired now and and not in great shape, but to go to sort of as a part of this countdown, go back and see that performance. I was really deeply moved by it. I think there's a, there's a sensitivity to his performance that you just frankly don't expect of Bruce Willis's uh, sort of on screen persona or characters. And not only is there a tenderness to that there's, it's really effective. I think the the tenderness, the care with which he put he sort of injects this character with to really care for this this kid, right? This this boy who, you know, not that he doesn't know him, but that is just sort of not his responsibility, but is sort of thrust upon him, um, Sam, and he just sort of really rises to the occasion. And I think of all the sort of unlikable people that we talk about in Anderson movies. Um, even like Ray Fiennes, right? Like he's kind of a douchebag. Like he's not, he is super likable. Don't get me wrong. But like, you wouldn't be like, that's a great guy. You know what I mean? Not, not in a traditional sense. And I think that, that Bruce Willis's character of Captain Sharp in Moonrise Kingdom is like one of the few people um, in a sort of a, a main primary role in an Anderson movie where you go to like, he's like kind of a great guy, you know? Like, I think you're sort of rooting for him. You're rooting for the kids too, of course. I think you're rooting for the three of them. And I just really loved um sort of the the period at the end of bruce willis's career if you think of like you know big movies that he was doing so thought it was an awesome performance personally and you know i think we've picked probably well not even probably we've picked what i kind of estimate would be the three best lead performances from anderson movies to talk about here so i don't know if you guys have any other thoughts that you want to add to to bruce willis or or any other people talked about but that's that I loved Bruce. I love Bruce Willis's performance. We talked about it a lot during Moonrise. It was one um, where 
you know, I also had the same issue with you as not knowing where the, whether to classify it as a lead or supporting. So I'm glad you brought it up now because now I can focus on other supporting performances because there's obviously a wealth to talk about. Oh, sure. Yeah. Movies. Yeah. That Jay, anything else from you? Amen to what you said. It was a, I was like surprising only because I haven't seen him in a whole lot. And the stuff I've seen him in again, hasn't yeah, you've only seen like sin city, right? So basically, um, and I'm kidding by the way. Yeah. Um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, just wouldn't have expected it. And I found it quite moving too. So like, you know, shout out to him. Totally. Yeah. Scott's comment there segues pretty nicely into what I imagine will be a much more difficult question because of the sheer number of supporting performances that exist in the Wes Anderson oeuvre favorite supporting performance, Scott, we'll let you kick it off again. Yeah. I mean, I think there's one that everyone expects me to say, I think I'm going to try to spread the wealth a little bit. Um, Expects you to say, just say what you want, man. Yeah. I don't know. No, no, no. I'm going to spread I'm going to spread the wealth a little bit because I'm going to reference this performance later in one of the other categories. He's spreading so the wealth because I'm he's, he's giving a tie, a 10 way tie for his favorite. It's flowers. No, no, it's nothing like that. Um, but I'm the performance I'm going to choose. Therefore is uh, Bill Murray in Rushmore. Um, I okay. think this is quite possibly Bill Murray's greatest performance. Um, Again, um, it harnesses his deadpan energy perfectly. I think it, a lot of his roles in Wes Anderson movies do that. Um, we may talk about that more, but um, this just feels like the purest ethos of, of who Bill Murray is as a performer and what he can do both comedically and dramatically. I mean, obviously, he most people associate him with the world of comedy with Ghostbusters, with, you know, Stripes, with all of these iconic 80s and 90s comedies that he was a part of. Caddy but Jack. I think, sure, yeah, uh, Groundhog Day. But um, yeah, I mean, I think he's able to portray the real sadness of this character, Herman Bloom, as well, in, in a brilliant way. And just the, you know, the sort of aimless place that he finds in his life, that he finds himself in um, and is kind of, dragged out of dragged out of when he meets rosemary when he meets um olivia williams's um character and then obviously his interactions with with max with jason schwartzman um you know i think develop into obviously there's the the prank war and everything there's like a you know strange rivalry that's going on between them at one point but develop into something you know warmer and much more interesting uh and i think you know, there's some really rewarding moments in there, like when Bill Murray meets um, meets Max's father, Seymour Cassell, for the first time in the barber shop. I think that scene is perfectly played. Um, but he's also very funny too. I mean, just some of the absurd stuff he does. He's blocking the kids' basketball shots. You know, he's running off and just running weirdly, randomly off in in a funny and and abrupt way. Um, and so it, it really just harnesses everything. That I think that's great about bill murray as a performer and and you know again reveals a side of him that i think people may not really know was there if you only watch like his most popular films but he actually is a very good dramatic actor and uh this is kind of where those seeds started to be planted and obviously they would later pay off and stuff like lost in translation sure jay what about you favorite supporting performance it's got to be scout master randy ward uh, that's Ed Norton and Moonrise Kingdom. 
again, I feel like I've seen Ed Norton in just so many different, less lovable goofball roles. You know, we've seen him be a hero, an anti-hero, evil, split personality, tech mogul, you know, slash idiot. Um, but lovable goofball Ed Norton uh, is probably my favorite. And I think just a briefly stretch out of this because I don't think I'm going to be stealing yours uh, if I reference his performance in Isle of Dogs as Rex because he has some of that same earnest, you know, look out for the pack type quality. Um, but mm-hmm. I think the reason his performance in Moonrise Kingdom does it for me, I mean, you're, you know, you're seeing him in person, just like really looking after kids, you know, taking to heart the struggle that Sam is going through, you know, as an awkward introvert, like not wanted by his family. Like you can sense Ed Norton just being like, what? Um, and there's that scene later after, uh, you know, the kids have been caught and he's talking to Sam afterwards and, you know, tells him about, you know, the tent that they were found. And I think he was saying, you know, I would have given that a gold star, or a perfect score. I don't remember exactly what the you know point of merit was, but he was just, you know, there was that really nice moment between them at the end of that uh, whole, though at the end of the manhunt that really sticks with me. And yeah, just love, lovable goofball. Ed Norton, you know, looking out for his, like I'm, I'm on board. Yeah. Can't blame you for that. I had a suspicion that you were going to take Ed Norton. So uh, suspicion confirmed. I will say Bill Murray. I shouldn't be surprised in retrospect, maybe, but I, I was a little surprised that Scott didn't go with his boy um, from the Grand Budapest Hotel. It's, it will come up. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I was really torn between, um, about four or five performances from the Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, and also a performance that crazy it has not been mentioned, I guess, since I thought that Scott loved it greatly um, in the French Dispatch. So, yeah, I guess I was, I really thought something out of Grand Budapest and French Dispatch would be where Scott emerges from, but alas, not the I'm case. Surprise to Scott. I, sure, why not? I, you know, we've been doing this for over five, almost five. Gotta and keep half you years on your now. toes. Yeah. Still surprised. Yeah, every day. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm torn here because I didn't think I'd have to choose. Like, I fi- I figured one of the options that I'm looking at here on my page would have been taken. And, and now I have to sit here and choose. I am going to go with the Grand Budapest Hotel and I am going to choose uh, F. Murray Abraham for, you know, one of the great supporting performances in the film. I mean, honestly, it was it was agony to just sort of decide which one from this film that I wanted to talk about. Uh, I wasn't touching Adrian Brody because I did think that Scott was going to take him. But I also thought about Willem Dafoe, mainly just because, you know, one of the most embarrassing in theater experiences I've ever had in my life is associated with him. And I'll never be able to shake that you know, spiritually, emotionally. Physically. I feel like that has to be coming up later, right? I've, sure. I've seen the list of questions. I feel like it has to. I mean, well, I, I, guess, I guess we'll have to wait and see if one of you sure, motherfuckers sure. takes it. Then uh, I'm coming for your throats. OK, <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, Harvey Keitel, even I think that there's a like, hilarious you know, brief moment that he has. But I did settle on F. Murray Abraham. I, I think for so many reasons, I, I think like the, the most like powerful Anderson movies to me are the ones that's just sort of like emotionally really can like needle needle into me. I think one of the reasons why Royal Tenenbaums is such a, a you know, ended up being a really special movie to me is because I think that and even beyond all the stuff with Gene Hackman that we just talked about a few moments ago, it has this sort of knack of just resonating somehow with me. Like, it doesn't make much sense. I'm an only child. It's not like I have this, like, huge similarities to the Tenenbaum 
clan, but just something about the film just really, really struck me. And I think that the Grand Budapest Hotel has so much going for it. But in addition to all of that, it has the emotional resonance of this older Zero Mustafa character. And F. Murray Abraham just really, he nails it. He's got like three scenes basically to, to really hammer it home. Uh, and they're just sort of interspersed throughout the, you know, historical narrative that's taking place. And he strikes the perfect tenor, uh, I think, in, in all the key all the key moments to, to sort of really drive home the the sort of emotional aspect of the film. So a plus for that performance. So one of, one of my favorites. Yeah, best supporting performance in that movie for me. So I, I think you picked the right one. Yeah. Yeah, it was between that and Jeffrey Wright. I'll say it. Moving on. All right. Favorite West regular qualifying. This as someone who has more six or more appearances in a Wes Anderson film to date. So not including Asteroid City. And I did some homework for you guys, and it boils down to three people you get to choose from. So this can be a lightning round if you want. Owen Wilson, Bill Murray, Jason Schwartzman. Scott, who who's your fighter? Yeah, I said I wanted to spread the wealth, but I am going to, you know, back go over uh, a back recent answer for right. me as well. Yeah, yeah. but I'm going to go with Bill Murray. Um, yeah, uh, I won't spend too long since I kind of just talked about, um, you know, what made him great in Rushmore. But again, I think Wes Anderson really just unlocked something in Bill Murray as a performer that wasn't really there before. And you get to see all of the attributes that he has, whether it's the comedic chops that we know and that we're familiar with. And, um, you know, he does have some more outwardly comedic roles in Wes films perhaps like maybe the Royal Ten Bombs might be a good example of that. Um, but most of his his roles are, you know, flirting with the dramatic and in some cases, you know, outright dramatic. If you think about like the life aquatic with Steve Zuzu, um, where I do think he gives a brilliant performance. I think that definitely could have been answered for best lead performance too. I think that would have been a perfectly fair answer. Um, and then, you know, even most recently in the French Dispatch, I also love the smaller but important role that he plays there and the little tokens of wisdom that he imparts on each one of his writers that we see throughout the film. Um, again, he he's able to feel like that sort of magnetic um, presence, similar to like I was talking about with, um, with Royal Tendenbaum, where you can really feel his influence and all the different vignettes that we're seeing throughout the French Dispatch. But yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's Bill Murray for me. All three, I think, were great options and, um, and you know, have put in great performances. But I think just because of the evolution that we've seen of him as a performer over his whole career and then over his performances even within the Wes Anderson films, too, I think seeing him, like, mature a little bit as an actor and um, become a real dramatic force, I think, has been something, you know, interesting to to monitor in the context of a, a chronological series like this sure yeah hard to hard to say too much against that jay do you agree it's bill murray or are you selecting someone different i'll take someone different i'll take owen wilson and i'll say this one was a little bit tougher only because i think four of the six were pre the big gap um but sure. thinking about it and i'm just gonna jump around a little bit um 
you know, in the Darjeeling limited, like he plays the over-controlling Francis. There's that, you know, he's always like ordering for his brothers. And there's that scene at the end where you see his mom kind of doing the same thing. And that just, that parallel absolutely killed me. I'm like, wow, like, you know, well played in this role, like, you know, rolling up to this moment where we see, oh, you're, you know, the spitting image of your super problematic mom. Um, you know, he had my favorite moment in Fantastic Mr. Fox when he's explaining Whackbat, just, you know, in his very quick cameo. Uh, you know, a film we've already said some nice things about in Royal Tenenbaums. He's playing Eli, you know, someone who desperately wants to be a Tenenbaum. Uh, you know, he has that scene where he crashes through the house, just like, you know, sending the whole thing into disarray. Like, again, just what a chaotic character. Um, and just to, I guess, put a bow on it. I thought back to his performance as Ned Plimpton in Life Aquatic, um, where Bill Murray, you know, is absolutely the star. And that was my backup, backup lead performance in case I had to go third. Uh, and the first two were taken and it was great. But I think so much that added to the film overall. And I think that ultimately, you know, I, even though Bill Murray is like being awful to him and a lot of this, like that, that dynamic, you know, of, Owen Wilson like wanting to connect with this long lost father figure up to like the burial at sea and like after that like you know that that really tugged at my strings um so much and I, I don't know like I'll, I'll remember that that and then like the end of Life Aquatic which you know I think is a great Bill Murray moment are the two things that really stick with me so I'm gonna you know for the reasons I just mentioned go with Owen Wilson to be clear he has he has eight performances in West movies not six you you said I went with the four that I remembered the best and stood out the most, not the other four, but thanks, Scott. Sure. Well, I mean, you just said there were six at the beginning. You said four of his six. I, I did. Four, so yeah, I yeah. did. Um, that's my bad. Didn't want the non-existent comments to come after you. Guys, <laughs> somehow we're picking all three of them. I'm taking Jason Schwartzman. I think he's sort of like sneaky. I think he's sneaky in that like as much as Bill Murray and Owen Wilson are sort of like the, they're like they're like his OG guys. Like even Owen when he's not like big in in the films like there's a component of this where you know he's written co-written a lot of these movies with Wes or at least a few of them and so he's like always there Bill Murray like Scott I think really eloquently pointed out like uh, he, he missed out on Bottle Rocket but he's really been a ride or die with Wes since then I actually don't think he's in Asteroid City which is funny now that I've said that so I don't think he's in either of Wes's two new movies mainly because I think he's got other stuff going on um, but he was sort of, he's sort of just been there the whole time and Jason Schwartzman obviously got there pretty, uh, you know, pretty early on since he is the lead in Rushmore, which is, you know, maybe not a surprise to say not not my favorite performance. But I think that he's just had sort of these like sneaky, good performances and roles, like always really solid in pretty much every film that he's done, which, uh, you know, since Rushmore, like Darjeeling Limited, I think is he's sort of like the quietest of the three brothers but I think there's like a real sort of like a there's almost like a real pathos, I think, to his character in terms of the sort of almost like the most disaffected of his, of the three brothers and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Like, I think he has a hilarious, a hilarious role in that film. Um, and then, yeah, Moonrise Kingdom, the cameo that he has and like the brief cameo he has is it's like incredible, an incredible cameo as the. uh is he I forget like his actual role, but he's in this other camp that they go to. Right. That and he like does the mar wedding ceremony. Yeah, he's like somebody's cousin or something, isn't he? Right. Or like cousin. Yeah. Something like something that. Like he's that, something yeah. like that. And he's like doing like the 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 marital ceremony mm -hmm. for Sam and 
um, Susie. Susie. Yeah. So just like hilarious. One of my favorite cameos in a West movie. And then he has these just like sneaky small roles here and there that I think they just sort of add up. And I think the fact that he is, um, I think he's, it seems like he has a pretty meaty role again in Asteroid City from what I can tell. Uh, it has me frankly excited. <laughs> so we'll see if he sort of continues to, to back me up on this choice. But yeah, I, I went with Jason Schwartzman here and, you know, not, not just to be different uh, for a change, but I, I did really appreciate him. I think he's someone who I've grown to appreciate more and more, even if his biggest role in a West film isn't necessarily the one that I would gravitate towards. All right, moving on from that, we're going to switch gears, stop talking about acting, get in a little bit more to the nitty gritty. We're going to go with the question that I was referencing earlier on and go with favorite quality of Wes's filmmaking. Very broad question can be actual mechanical element of his filmmaking can be themes can be whatever you want it to be. Scott will go to you first. What's your favorite quality of Wes's filmmaking? Yeah, I guess if I had to sum it up, I would say sort of just the whimsy of all of it, um, I think is something, you know, even in his more serious films that, um, you know, you get these moments of it creeping in. And then, yeah, I think the recent films in particular are the ones where he's leaned more heavily into that side of him. Certainly you think about um, Moonrise Kingdom that we're just talking about and just sort of the the camp scout setting and all of that the ultimate whimsy yeah almost nostalgia play like you it lends itself perfectly to that sort of um feel and you know the grand budapest hotel i think certainly just the way everything's designed you have that alexander desplat you know sort of um jaunty score going on um and you know like chase scenes and stuff like that even you know like people are shooting guns at the end and it still feels like very you know, whimsical uh, because of the the world that he's able to create. And then, you know, even the French Dispatch as well, that whole animated chase sequence that he's able to throw in there. I just like that he's able to throw stuff like that into his movies without it ever like feeling jarring or like it's suddenly changing the stakes or anything of what we're watching. Um, you know, again, the French Dispatch, like we're in the middle of this, you know, kidnapping plot and whatnot and, um, Jeffrey Wright, I think, lends a lot of gravitas to his role um, as Roebuck Wright in that film. And yet, you know, here we have this animated, you know, um, very sort of colorful, creative, again, whimsical chase sequence thrown in the middle there. And it just feels like, yeah, of course that's there. You know, it just feels seamless. Um, and uh, I think that's something that he's able to do in all of his films. Again, even like Rushmore, like I mentioned, you know, when the characters are going through really serious emotional turmoil and stuff, you still have Bill Murray blocking a basketball shot. You still have this prank war breaking out and everything. I think he's able to do it in a way that never seems, you know, trite or childish or whatever word you want to use there. Um, I think, you know, it's just part of the, the masterful tonal control that he really has in all of his films. Jay, what about you? I think for me, it would it would have to be something Scott. I think you kind of alluded to when you talked about the the forming of the style. I can't remember what movie you started with. Maybe it was Tenenbaums to Fantastic Mr. Fox, but the the fact that he's kind of doubling down on this this the style and you know thematically, like I'll just include you know including like dysfunctional families or more broadly relationships, right? Like there's a lot of just 
I'm going to keep to me, like, you know, I'm going to keep making this, but it's going to get better and better. And, you know, this goes back to kind of the, one of the critiques I've mentioned that I've heard, you know, is like, Oh, like he does a lot of the same thing. And to me, like, again, not, not bored of that yet. And really like, I, I will say, I really admire how, and like you've pointed out, you know, you can see it really develop. Like, I don't, I don't, we don't, we haven't seen that again. I haven't seen nearly as many, you know, director filmographies as you have, but I haven't seen that before. And I think it's pretty gutsy to, you know, do a lot of the same thing. Um, I'm sure you'll see, you know, maybe catch us some flack for using this, a lot of the same actors, but I, I just really respect kind of the doubling down on the same style. And like, you know, there's a, there's like a simplicity to it, right? Like, you know, my color tells you mood and these shots are symmetrical. Like, again, there's a lot more to it, but I'm just, you know, broadly thinking of things that are like, oh yeah, this is what Wes does. It's like, yeah, he does. But it's also generally speaking, you know, better and better each time he does it, generally speaking. Um, So I applaud him for that. Yeah, there's a, there's a real refinement across almost everything in an Anderson movie it, it, over time. I mean, may, maybe I think Scott may, might have more films from earlier on in Wes's filmography that are that are relatively speaking more highly regarded than maybe myself. I could be wrong about that too. I don't know, but I do think it's one of the reasons why I almost I appreciate so many of his his sort of latter works more more so than his earlier ones not even an inherent statement about quality just i think there's something about the filmmaking that sort of really coalesces and uh even even beyond the subject material that he's putting to screen i think there's a lot but i think for me the style i'm always someone who i think as we do these types of filmographies i can't help but really sort of lock in on the the thematic interest of the filmmaker and i think one of the things that scott's already talked quite a bit about is just sort of how his sensibilities in the themes that he's thinking about has developed over time. And the dysfunctional family stuff, I, I, I'll i be honest, like that's probably one of the reasons why I'm not totally in love with a bunch of his earlier movies. Cause I think the family dysfunction outside of Tenenbaums, it just doesn't always connect with me. But one of the, to one of Scott's points earlier is that I think he really was able to manufacture something that's, not not just like sentimental or, or more optimistic or less jaded, but I think something that's just more interesting in in sort of like find like sad people, depressed people finding their place and finding happiness. I think there's like it's like such at the core of so many of his like sort of second half of his filmography works. Like even something as like childish, so to speak, as Fantastic Mr. Fox being a Roald doll story like that is like ultimately just about this like guy who's like trying to figure out what's going to make him happy and how he fits in with his community. Like it, it really just feels like at a basic level, um, the sort of thematic target of West changed a lot with fantastic Mr. Fox. You start to see it a little bit in some of the movies before that, but I think you really, it is cause it's not, it is still a part of something like Zisu or even Darjeeling limited, but I think it really crystallizes as like a key focus in Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I think that sort of like Nolan and, and his interest with time, um, <laughs> sometimes even as the fourth dimension. But uh, I think that sort of this notion of like really, of like really sad people finding happiness um, or vice versa in some ways, like happy people end up finding sadness. 
I think is something that he just became like really just like inescapably interested in for a large portion of his sort of second half of his filmography so far. Be curious how that develops further. I think it was maybe less true in Isle of Dogs to some extent, but I think it was really recaptured in parts of the French Dispatch. And I'm curious if Asteroid City will develop that further. So moving along, we'll keep things going, zeroing in on another element of his filmmaking, his love of music. Uh, this can this can be a soundtrack moment, can be a needle drop, can just be a score of, of a film that you just particularly love and go back to and think about. But I'm looking for your favorite musical cue or score from a Wes Anderson film. Yeah, I mean, I think score, you know, I would I would have to say one of Desplat's two recent ones, just sort of the beautiful playfulness of Grand Budapest, which won the Oscar and then French Dispatch as well. But overall music moment, I think, has to go to um, the needle drop at the end of Rushmore of um, the Faces classic song, Ooh La La, um, sure. that plays, you know, at the, the post play party i guess it is mm -hmm. where um rosemary and max meet on the dance floor and she takes his his glasses off there and you know has a little bit of an emotional experience maybe thinking about her deceased husband a little bit in that moment uh, and mm -hmm. the two of them just start to have a little dance there as the movie ends and we hear um that song and in particular the chorus of i wish that i knew um what i know now when I was younger, I think just a lot of the lyrics of the song, you know, tie into the film, but particularly that refrain there in the chorus, I think sums up uh, maybe some of the stuff that that character is going through and um, that Rosemary is going through and, and what she's sort of getting from her, her relationship with Max her friendship with Max, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the point that she's arrived at at the end of the movie and who she sees him as now. Um, so I think that's a, a perfect moment of, you know, not just a great song, but of the song and the themes of the movie coalescing to create this sort of very bittersweet moment to send us off on. I think it's a, it's an excellent closing needle drop. Jay, what about you? Yeah, another tough one, uh, given the time, but there's, uh, I mean, the time disparity between some of these we've watched, but I think one that I remember in a broader sense, really just chugging along very well was Fantastic Mr. Fox. I felt like there were a lot of, I remember there being some pretty upbeat numbers, I think from the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones that I thought just played really well with the animation, really drove the story along. Um, and, you know, like, again, it's a it's a kid's story with like adult themes, like we've already touched on that. And I felt like the the energy from those was just quite right. In terms of a particular needle drop, uh, you know, I, I didn't come in with one, but now that we're trying to maybe pinpoint those, I'm I'm weirdly flashing back to the end of the Darjeeling Limited uh, when they're chasing the train again, but this time without their baggage. Like, and I, you know, I gotta I gotta rewind the tapes and see if last time I thought it was a little cheeky and on the nose, but even so, like with time, I'm I, I think I've warmed on it, and that that particular moment stands out. Sure. I'm going to go with Life on Mars, the Portuguese cover that they did in Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. I It's probably a function of the fact that like we when we recorded that podcast, we weren't too far removed from Life on Mars 
being a pretty big needle drop in a Paul, a different Anderson movie, a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And I think it was so it caught my attention so much when it happened because it literally like it projected me like into like a different time and place from several months before. But then it was also different because it was like some Portuguese cover of the song, I think. Um, I, I can't remember the performer's name. I probably should remember the performer's name, but I don't. Um, and so I just I, I remember that very specifically. And it was like a smash cut to it, too. It was like a very comedic moment that was being hit with that. And then um, it sort of smash cut to that. I, I, I don't necessarily like it's not my favorite film overall, but I remember it having quite a few good needle drops in there, which, uh, you know, made for memorable moments as you know, since I'm talking about them now. Speaking of memorable moments, guys, other another type of moment that we're looking for funniest moment in a Wes Anderson movie. Scott, what is it for you? Okay, now this is where I'm going to reference, you know, the supporting performance that sure. maybe is my sure. real answer to the question earlier, but, uh, you know, spreading the wealth and whatnot. Um, it it has the to academy. be. Yeah, it has to be, though, the mural reveal sequence. So the entire sequence, really, uh, from the French Dispatch, um, and in particular, the, the concrete masterpiece, that first story. Sure. Um, the scene where uh, fresco reveal, I guess, is more appropriate term terminology, but where Moses Rosenthaler has revealed that he has actually uh, painted the, the fresco into the walls of the prison, um, which enrages Julian Cadazio, Adrian Brody's character. Um, and hijinks ensue, all of which are hilarious to me. Um, I think, you know, maybe a standout moment, individual moment, might be uh, when, uh, you know, Brody is initially he's in love with the, the you know, paintings and um, is just rhapsodizing about them to Lois Smith's character, um, who is like the investor that's there looking at the, the paintings. Mm-hmm. And he's just going on this rant about how incredible and influential and, you know, world changing these uh this art is going to be and then just in the middle of his motor mouth string of dialogue just breaks off and because he realizes that lois smith has referred to it as a fresco and goes why the fuck did she say fresco and that's the moment where he realizes you know that it has been painted into the wall and freaks out and you know the loses it yeah so some slapstick ensues and, and everything um but just his delivery of that like could not be any more perfect like you know, his his brain is working, you know, or his mouth is working, you know, 10 times faster than his brain. And then all of a sudden you see that moment where catches his brain up. catches up. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, uh oh, <laughs> what <laughs> what did she just say? And what does that mean for my ability to make money on this? So yeah. everything he's doing in the movie is hilarious. But if I had to point to one moment, it's that. Jay, how about you? I worry I might have the same answer as you. So I'm going to pick my backup. It's okay. Um, no, your truth, I, I, I can't do you like that. You, you, you have too much, too much ties to this. Um, so I'll go with uh, Bill Murray in Moonrise Kingdom when at the end of the manhunt, they finally caught the kids and, you know, they kind of like run into the back of the tent and zip it up and the shot is just from there. And then all of a sudden he just lifts it up and you see all the chaos behind them. And it's like, well, that didn't yeah. work. Yeah. I don't know. I, something about that just really sticks out to me. I thought it was, really really funny um yeah i mean there's yeah. so many funny moments in that movie overall like they're just running they're running around the campgrounds like trying to get away from the yeah. people chasing them and kid get you know gets struck by lightning just very very silly film 
indeed. So take, I'm curious. Take, take so your... what, what did you think my favorite was? It has to be Willem throwing out the cat. Well, sure. Does anyone, do you actually, is that actually the funniest moment in a West movie? I just feel like I'm like on an island on that. I, I really That's tried to have you back in that recording. That that was the first one I wrote. I wrote that yeah. and then I wrote Whack Bat, which I've already mentioned a few times. And sure. then I wrote Bill Murray, Lifting the Ten. Those were my three. Yeah. But yeah, look, I had Whack Bat ready as a backup. Don't worry. Whack Bat, very, very funny. Yeah, that was, um, that was, but, that was my second choice. But yeah, look, I, I don't need to retell my my story about the seeing the Grand Budapest Hotel for the for the first time in a, in a fully crowded theater in Williamstown, Massachusetts with people that I went to school with. Um and was the only person to bust out laughing when Willem Dafoe, uh, apropos of basically nothing, throws a cat out the window and killing it, and kills it. But, you know, uproariously funny. It's funnier now because of that story, honestly, for me. It's it's like even funnier now that I went I lived through that. So God, if it makes you feel better, I also watched this with at least one person that I went to school with and I was the only one laughing. So Yeah. It seems like a different back, issue man. overall, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I got that, you that, back, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so funny. I mean, there's so many parts of the Grand Budapest Hotel that are just hilarious. I mean, the know, takeover almost... moment as well was close for me. Yeah. Sure. You know, yeah. You like see half all the of... other bellhops and takeover. You know, yeah. he's doing the CPR takeover. Yeah, and like half of the stuff that Adrian Brody says, like even in the same scene as throwing the cat out the window, mm. it's just like hilarious and crazy. Um, very, very funny film. Guys, next question. We got two left before we're hitting the big ones, before we hit the, the big awards, the big questions. Uh, one genre or setting or event, so broad again here, you would like Wes to make a film about in the future. Notably, I think Asteroid City, I don't think this is a spoiler to say this, is a, is a sort of science fiction leaning film. Uh, it is a subgenre in science fiction. I mean, I think Wes is his own genre. It will always be some sort of drama, uh, comedy, and fusion with him, but. He's having this lean with Asteroid City that he's leaned a bit sci-fi. And I'm, it did sort of spark this question in my mind because he hasn't really done something more genre like that, I don't think, at least not in a while, probably not since, since Steve Zissou, arguably, that um, he's doing something a little bit different, guys. And I'm, I'm curious if there's some sort of genre or event or something like that that you'd be interested in him like making a movie adjacent to in the future. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, um, so piggybacking off of our discussion of Whack Bat there. Sure. Let's make a sports film. I I had a feeling you were going to say sports. That's so sick. I love that. Um, I mean, look, it's in various parts of his movies, even, you know, like random basketball court scenes like we've talked about. But more prominently, we have the Whack Bat scene. We have the fact that in Isle of Dogs, uh, Bill Murray's character was the mascot for a baseball team in in Mm -hmm. Japan. Um, and so, you know, he is clearly familiar in some capacity with the world of sports. I don't know to what degree Wes Anderson is a sports fan. He doesn't strike me as the type of guy who would be, but again, the fact that, you know, his films reference sports, he is aware of them in some regard, but I could um, see him posting up at a baseball game. I think baseball would be the one, but number one, I think, you know, the way that he shoots action quote you know quote unquote is just really entertaining and creative to watch and i think i mean again as we've seen with like the whack bat scene i think he could shoot some really unique and enjoyable scenes of sports being played um and then you know again just his writing um you know he has a very poetic and sometimes even romantic way about talking about things again particularly in his recent films 
I am somebody who's, you know, very passionate about sports, um, who they're not just games to me or whatnot. So um, I would love to see Wes, you know, using his his dialogue and, and you know, writing to rhapsodize, so to speak, about um, the the beauty and poetry of a particular sport. Like I can just hear, you know, some sort of voiceover narration or something in Wes Anderson style talking about like baseball or something like that. Like, I think that would, I would just eat that up if he did that. So that was the first thing that came to mind for me. Moneyball, but make it Wes Anderson. Gotcha. All right. Sure. Jay, what about you? I mean, I think you know what I'm going to say too, right? Like comic book movie. Yeah. Has to be. I mean, I've talked about this already, but the thing that keeps his movies interesting. You know, Jay. Honestly, I'm gonna I'm gonna be straight with you right now, and not just a completely really under the bus. But I said that as a joke, and I can't believe that you're actually saying. Oh yes yeah, to no, this absolutely, right absolutely. But hear me out. Hear me out. Oh, I mean, so we I've, no. I've talked about how you know it's the change in settings that make yeah. his films feel different. And my initial thought actually wasn't um this and like i ultimately landed on this like kind of as a joke because ultimately i have no idea what franchise i would want him helming up but it doesn't have to be a franchise man or, or you know what character whatever but sure the the i was thinking about setting wise and one of the things that popped into my head was a conversation we had around darjeeling where i'm like you know go back to south asia but instead of just doing like you know deserts and villages like you know let's go to like a city but then i thought about the fact that we've seen you know films in cities that don't it's not that they don't feel like cities but they just feel distant there's just some quality that maybe it's a result of the pace or the way you know the shots are colored but you know even if you know we've talked we've talked earlier in this about like you know how he shoots action like i feel like if you were to shoot like an action scene through new york it still just wouldn't really feel like an action scene through new york and that's not like a bad thing. It's just like, okay, wait, I don't actually even know what that would look like. So I don't know like what I'm going for here. And so this, you know, just takes me to, you know what? The MCU is in a really weird place right now. Why don't we just give him, give him the Fantastic Four, you know? Like I honestly just like do it. I don't even care. Like have fun with it. Um, I don't know. I, I know you meant this as a goof, but like what answer do I have? Sports was a good answer. I will say, I, I kind of wish I'd thought of that. And, you know, that, as someone who like you know also really cherishes sports, um, I went to bed. Oh my god, happier than I have in such a long time after my <laughs> beat Boston last night. But yeah, you know it. Uh, I can't. I can't ride with with you on this one, Jay. I'm sorry. I okay. you, you have, have memed yourself. I think by that's, saying that's the okay. MCU. I I know my role here. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, well, we can move on and not talk about that again ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for me, I think he's like bordered on this before. So it feels like it's not a cheat, but like, I feel like he just needs to lean all the way. And like, he needs to make a political thriller. Like he needs to just do it. Like he need like give him uh, Watergate is like so overused at this point, but like give him something like that. Give him some yeah. sort of like political bureaucratic thriller. I'm thinking like West, like dark waters, but make it Wes Anderson, Scott. Spotlight, but make it Wes Anderson. I think what you're saying is he needs a second crack at Isle of Dogs because Isle of Dogs is borderline like a political thriller in some ways. Yeah, no, so, like, so that, that's that's one that. reference. I even I even think Grand Budapest Hotel is like a little yeah. bit of, of, yeah. of that kind of vibe, right? I just think that his sort of sentiment and sensibilities, I think, can align really well in an era where I think a lot of like like there's a there could be a satirical edge 
to the political thriller. And I almost think that to make it palatable for a broader audience, it almost kind of like, I feel like a lot of like thrillers these days just need some sort of different edge. It just seemed like not a genre that people are that interested in anymore. And I think that something like that, I think he could really excel at because I'm, I don't know if he's like super interested in having a political perspective. So I'm not ever sure he'd be interested in making a movie like that. I don't really think of him as having like political beliefs. I don't think he's, that's not something that's really ever surfaced in his movies very much, frankly. Um, like maybe like the central story of the French dispatch, like the second story in the French dispatch is the closest he's like come to stating political belief, but you know, your mileage may vary on that, on that uh, anthology entry. But I think that he could do something like that. Some, some sort of like based on a true story, thriller type thing, uh, political or otherwise, I think there's some potential there. All right. One thing you change about one of his films that you love Scott pick. Tell us what movie, what movie you're choosing to change and what's it going to be. So it's the French dispatch, um, which sure. again is a movie. Make a good second I story. I'm with you so far. Dearly love. Right. Well, uh, no, I'm not going to be that harsh about it because I yeah, do yeah, like yeah. the second story a whole lot. Um, but yes, it seems like I want everyone else to get on my level when it comes to the French dispatch. And I feel like a lot of people sure. are close but the thing that is holding people back is that second story. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think if I just had to change one thing about it, I think I would change the fact that Lucinda Crements, which is Frances McDormand's character, uh, has a, you know, sexual relationship of some sort with Zeffirelli, Timothy Chalamet's character. I think I would change that aspect of it. I don't know that it adds a whole lot to that vignette if, you know the fact that they are sleeping together and i think the vibes of it are just the vibes are off bad. the vibes are bad and i think that is one of the main reasons why people you know are a little harsher towards that second narrative because the vibes just get thrown off by whatever is going on there and i think if he he took that out again i don't think he's losing a whole lot and i think it would be more focused on the crux of the that particular story and you know the sort of political element of it and Zeffirelli as this revolutionary and the chessboard revolution and all this stuff that's going on which I think is very successful and might change some minds about the, that vignette and the film as a whole so mm -hmm. um you know I would point to that I do think if I had to point to one weakness in the French Dispatch it's that I mean I still love the movie overall and you know i wouldn't change anything about it really but again the just in the interest of maybe uniting uh the the other look i want to be there with you i want to be there i know the french dispatch yeah, people like unfortunately them. i don't know if it's as simple as changing the vibes on the relationship i do think there's maybe a deeper issue there for yeah, me but I, but it's i know a start. it's not yeah i know yeah. it's not that simple but you know the form of the question is sure. change one thing and i think that would if i had to change only one thing that would go a long way um, Fair. towards riding the ship maybe jay yeah this was a weird one i almost wanted to tackle it as a what movie would i maybe start to love if i made a change to it um but i'll ultimately pick one that i did um and it's not just adding myself as an extra to the grand budapest hotel because man i love that but i i think i would just make some tweaks to the scene by the lake and moonrise kingdom you know we 
I don't want to like harp on it too much. Like I, I just tried to pick something that I was like, oh yes, this was in like sure. one of the three movies I loved. Um, that ultimately would change again. I thought there was like a playful innocence to it. I still think for the most part there is, but there's just something a little bit weird to me about seeing these two kids like grope each other a little bit. So maybe we could just tweak that and you know take this movie I still really really like and just make it a little bit more palatable for me. I'm also gonna stick with Moonrise Kingdom. I'll be honest, I'm going to cheat a little bit here because it's a broader issue in a lot of Wes Anderson movies, including the ones that are my favorite, where, uh, guys, I'm looking around. I'm looking around every corner, under every crack, um, in every behind-the-scenes footage. I can't find a person of color anywhere in these movies, guys. Why is why is, is Rhode Island so white? New Penzance? Not a single person of color on that island. What's going on? Why can't we just uh, have a little bit more? I'm not saying West needs to make movies about black people and black experiences. Don't 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 misunderstand me. But I think that it's a very like it's a very easy critique, I think, to to lob at him that his films have virtually no representation whatsoever. Not even that the main characters are all white, just that there's like hardly a white person to be found in the cast. Obviously, um, Danny Glover and Jeffrey Wright are like the two exceptions. I, you know, I, I really went through some cast lists. I'm not going to say I was exhaustive, but really hard to find anyone um, in even a supporting role besides those two who is uh, a black person. So that's tough. Um, I do think that's like just, just tweaking the representation a little bit, guys, just tweaking the representation a little bit. Um, if we can, if we can hound Christopher Nolan about his ability to write good women, I think we can hound Wes Anderson about, finding some representation in this cast um, because I still love all these movies. And at the same time, I, I understand why people are a bit consternated about why the films uh, be so white, but there you go. That's what I got. All right. Big two final questions. Scott Harvey, what is your favorite scene or moment in all of Wes Anderson? What is it? It's a tough question. Um, it is. It's really hard. But I'm just going to go with my instinct here. Um, because um, last year, I guess it was last year, maybe two years ago, last year, I made a list of my top 100 scenes of all time. And I did a, a show where I counted them down. Um, How much did your list suck, Scott? That's what I want to know. Uh, I think I came in second or third out of four overall. So eh, mildly, but also I don't really credit yeah, no. the judge's yeah. opinion very much. But sure. um, But the highest rated scene from a Wes Anderson film on my list from my recollection um, is the uh, when we see the shark in the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. Um, I think that scene is absolutely beautiful. Of course, this is the the Jaguar shark, I believe it's called um, that they are hunting over the course of the movie that Steve um, maybe is real. Maybe he made it up, you know, again, we're not really sure killed his, his close friend, you know, in the opening um, and now he's on this revengeful. Yeah, it was like Javier is his for the shark. Or something yeah, like something like that. Um, yeah. Now he's on this vengeful hunt for him. Um, and, you know, we have just seen that Ned, right, his son, maybe not really his son, but, uh, you know, who he has now come to know as his son, Owen Wilson's character, has died. Um, it's a very emotional moment in the film. And then they see the shark. There's this moment of like, beauty it's very like like the way that he shoots the underwater is very sort of kaleidoscopic and um beautiful in that moment there's this seager ross song that starts playing on the soundtrack again just very sort of soothing and you have everyone there 
um, in the, the front of the ship minus Ned, you know, um, who are united there and, and kind of just stopping and appreciating the beauty of um, this particular moment that um, they have and, you know, letting the weight of what has just happened to them, specifically Ned dying, wash over them. And it's the most relatable moment you have with Steve, obviously, throughout the entire movie. And kind of, again, maybe even if you want to look at it from a 50,000 foot view, Mark's like this, truly marks like the shift we're talking about of Wes Anderson as a more open-hearted, optimistic filmmaker um, right here, kind of in the middle of his filmography. Um, and I, I, so I wanted to highlight the scene again, and I think it is my favorite from any of the movies, but also um, I think it shows that emotionality, which so many people feel is not present in Wes Anderson movies. Um, and I think, you know, this is a very, very moving scene and there are many of those in his films but this one kind of takes the cake for me you had jay really like going with that i don't know if you stole <laughs> his or, or if you just he was vibing hard with it but jay what's your favorite scene or moment from all of wes anderson that that was it and Ooh, i didn't think nice. i mean i did i did bring a backup just in case but i that was that was one i felt fairly safe was gonna stay i guess maybe we haven't seen it in so long that i thought maybe it would you know maybe it'd be something more recent for scott harvey but um also esteban the name of the guy who died not javier oof um but yes yeah, just just a very quickly plus one everything scott harvey said um you can take then, it jay it's okay you don't no, have, you, okay. you can share i brought a backup that i think is also at least for me was quite moving even though the film itself doesn't come in quite as high for me i'm thinking of in isle of dogs uh when chief and atari start to bond uh first no, yeah, now I have Scott Shelton going. Isle like, of Dogs what? heat, wow. No, it, it, so first of all, like, to, to set the scene, right, like, Wes has potentially killed four of the five main dogs, which going into this, I'm also just on the lookout for, okay, does Wes Anderson actually hate dogs? And then this has happened, and you're like, oh my god. Uh-huh. Um, but then Atari um, and Chief are kind of on their own. You know, Chief takes a bath, you know, revealing that he's white, which, you know, that that was up there in terms of like moments I've cackled at. Like, I was just like, what? Like, you know, I, just like weirdly funny. And then they, you know, start to play or they don't start to play. I tries to teach him like fetch. Um, and he's just like, you know, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And ultimately like they, you know, just, they showed just like that very quick spark of like, you know, like we're going to look after each other, which, you know, later turns into like taking over guard dog responsibilities and whatnot. But like, that 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 moment where they you know he's trying to be like you know fetch and he's just like no um yeah i don't know there, there was there was something really heartwarming to me about their relationship um okay i'm a little surprised by steve zisu and isle of dogs being our two favorite the movies that was my two one favorite too. scenes so steve far this is a great movie okay I'm just I don't know no, I'm just, the movie but again the the end is just like there's such a sense of like wow you know, uh-huh. like and and wonder and like he yeah. he wasn't this like super shady. I'm Ben Affleck and Gone Girl doing everything to make myself seem guilty, like type. Like that is what he is throughout that movie to me. And then you get to the end, and you're like, wow, like it was it was real. So this was either like the greatest stroke of luck of all time, or more likely, like you know, this is actually you know he was telling the truth. And there's this like moment of like vindication, like everyone's seeing it, and it's just like wow. Yeah, um, certainly. 
No, no, no comment on the quality of, the, of the, either film. I'm just surprised that's where the two favorite scenes so far have come from. I'm taking something from the Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, frankly, it was quite difficult to choose one scene. But I do think sort of the, the peak of the movie, the, Wes Anderson at the height of his both like comedic, dramatic and like sense of adventure powers is this sort of climbing up the mountain and then skiing back down the mountain. That sort of whole sequence, I just think, is sort of epic Wes Anderson sort of capture captures why I just find him to be such a charming filmmaker. Um, there's a lot of joy, adventure, anxiety, pathos in that, like these, they're both trying to vin- like sort of, um, you know, exonerate themselves from the crime that they've been accused of, but also this like real sense of like camaraderie and adventure. And I think my sort of my favorite Wes Anderson moments sort of stem from that. So uh, hard, hard to choose, but ultimately because, a lot of moments like uh, are out there to capture that. And this one does the best for me. So I really loved, really loved so many moments in Grand Budapest Hotel, but certainly that one. All right. It's time. The Wes Anderson <coughs> rankings. I'm curious what these are going to shake out like. Cause genuinely, I, I mean, I did, I don't even know. I did mine 10 minutes before we recorded this podcast. Like I actually uh, went in and, and ranked them cause I hadn't done it. Usually I'm like all about actively ranking as we go and, and adjusting, but I went in cold this time. So if you guys uh, would indulge me, Scott, please rank your Wes Anderson films. I just know Jay's list is going to be chaos, but um, yeah. I really anyway. don't think so. I think there's going to be one chaotic one. Yeah. And the rest are going to be like more or less. I love dogs. Number one. All right. Here's what I'll say. Uh, the bottom five are all movies. I really like the top five are movies that I would say I love. So uh, there's the top five the- are also movies that I really like. Yes, but also <laughs> love. So there's maybe the dividing line, if any, again, okay. between a lot of movies that I have great feelings about so number 10 the darjeeling limited number nine isle of dogs number eight bottle rocket number seven the royal tenenbaums number six fantastic mr fox number five the life aquatic with steve zisu number four rushmore number three moonrise kingdom number two the grand budapest hotel and number one the french dispatch of the liberty kansas evening sun I mean, first off, any reactions to Scott's list? And you're smiling, Jay. What's what do you got? I mean, there's just a little more jostling in here than I thought. Like we have a, you know, a one nine split, which I kind of saw coming. But we also have a three seven <laughs> split, which is like, oh, okay, like, um, and that's in the other direction. Um, where I think I have. Yeah, three I'm, I'm definitely lower on ten bombs than most people, and then y'all will be, but still yeah. really good. No, and, and there's definitely some, you know, other jostling here and there. Uh, number 10, it's 10, right? Bottle Rocket. Number nine, The French Dispatch. I'm sorry, Scott. Number eight, The Darjeeling Limited. Number seven, Isle of Dogs. Number six, Life Aquatic. Number five, Rushmore. Number four, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Number three, Royal Tenenbaums. Number two, Moonrise Kingdom. And at number one, no surprise for me, at least, Grand Budapest Hotel. Interesting. I, I will say, I, we were going through this episode, guys. I, I thought that based on the life, aqua- the amount of life aquatic coverage in this, you, you, putting him at, putting them at six, hitting at six and five just kind of surprises me. I thought it was going to be higher up your list of, of movies. Seen some shrugs. I mean, there's just some real bangers in there. I mean, uh, you know, sure. number five is 
no by no means a, a knock no and no to totally yeah. i just i feel i i was surprised at the level of coverage that the life aquatic got on the podcast tonight um, i'm not mean, surprised that it was mentioned at all just that the frequency at which it was mentioned surprised yeah. me what, what I was trying to say before you came down on me was that movies six to two are all very, very close together for me. And it's not sure. to say that like, you know, Life Aquatic, like next week could be two. Um, but like, just to me, you know, the like two to six for me are very, very close. Gotcha. All right. For me, my list is actually extraordinarily close to Jay's, which um, maybe is something broader commentary about, yeah. about the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Number 10, Bottle Rocket. Number nine, The Darjeeling Limited. Number eight, Isle of Dogs. Number seven, Rushmore. Number six, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Uh, then I think that we level up in terms of quality. The French Dispatch. The Royal Tenenbaums. I think a bigger even step up from there after the French Dispatch to the Royal Tenenbaums. Fantastic Mr. Fox follows that up. Those two are pretty close together for me with number three and four. Number two, again, big step up here into Moonrise Kingdom. And number one, the Grand Budapest Hotel. I think one and two are, are fairly close, but but Grand, it's it, it's an easy choice to put Grand Budapest Hotel number one for me. I was sort of skeptical that I just loved that film coming in and maybe it wouldn't hold up in a full view of his filmography in more time. But if anything, my feeling felt is even stronger, I think, after after the most recent rewatch of that film but guys that will do it for the anderson countdown in full measure we will be back later this week with our episode covering asteroid city in fact you may have already seen asteroid city by the time you listen to this podcast i think it just came out a couple days ago or even if you're in certain geographies a week ago so really cool if you've already seen asteroid city we're excited to talk about that next week don't forget to check out our podcast uh, Patreon at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. But if not, it's okay. You can still find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, etc. So we continue to reach a broader audience. And once again, finally, we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Wes Anderson's filmography. We will not be back next week with another episode of the Anderson Countdown, but we will be back later this year with a Hayao Miyazaki countdown, our first fully animated countdown. Jay is once again going to be completely fresh. Uh, he's nodding. Yes, sir. He's not completely seen a Hayao fresh, Miyazaki which... movie. This is an idea that was floated even before we started the Wes Anderson countdown. There was essentially three different countdowns I believe we were choosing from, Jay. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, we did go with Wes at the time. But I think, frankly, I, I can't speak for Scott or or even yourself, but I think the longer that I have set with a Miyazaki countdown since he it was announced that he was going to be back in making a new film, I think the more I have been excited, A, to go through his entire, entire filmography in a more regimented way, like we do in this countdown, but B, also just, Jay, have you watched some of these movies? Um, I, I, I was curious, of course, what you thought, what you would think of Wes Anderson, but I, selfishly, just because... I just think Studio Ghibli and especially Hayao Miyazaki is just an incredibly gifted um, thematic filmmaker. Like what he's able to accomplish is just remarkable. But I'm just curious how you will react, not because they're so different, but because it doesn't feel, you know, so far out of your wheelhouse. And so because there is there is so much fantasy in a lot of his filmmaking. Um, and I'm very curious to see what you have to think of one of the goats of animation. Uh, to, to say the least. So we will be back later this year with a Miyazaki countdown. 
um, leading into his latest and what will probably most likely actually be his final film of his career. That is How Do You Live later this year. We hope you will join us then, and we hope you'll join us in the meantime uh, on Some Like It, Scott, as well. But until then, for Jay Habib and Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Thank you.